Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon, and today we are super happy to be following up on our episode number nine, which was State of EMS Stroke Care in 2018. And now just at about a year later, we're going to relook at all things stroke and large vessel occlusion. Today we have uh, three of our uh, expert panelists here with us. Dr. Yarzan Aldarazi, who's the Chief of Neuroendrovascular and NeuroICU at Memorial Harmon in the Woodlands. Dr. Jeremiah Johnson, who is the uh, Director of Stroke and Neurovascular at St. Luke's here in the Woodlands and an assist- Assistant Professor of, uh, of Neurosurgery yeah. at Baylor College of Medicine. And Dr. Abhishek Agarwal, who is the Director of Neurointerventional at Houston Methodist the Woodlands. Thanks very much, guys, for coming in and, and sharing your expertise with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Pleasure. So to start off, you know, I think we need to, to look at this is such an interesting and rapidly developing uh, area, field of, of medicine, and probably the most exciting medical intervention that I've seen in my 20-plus year uh, career. Um, this is a, a fairly new therapy in the big time context of medicine. You know, you, we really didn't hear much about this and providers didn't hear this term large vessel occlusion uh, until about 2015 when all the, the, the major studies came out. So Dr. Agarwal, could you just start us off and let's start with a little bit. Can you talk about the burden of uh, disease and stroke and a little background in stroke? So stroke is the number one cause of disability among all the major uh among all the major medical uh, diseases. It, there are about 800,000 patients that are affected uh, on an annual basis, and then the, the cost for taking care of these sick and elderly patients runs uh, to about $33 billion or more. So now there are, if you classify strokes, there are two different types of strokes, hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic strokes. Hemorrhagic stroke is about 20%, so the large bulk of patients that we see is ischemic strokes. Now, among these subset of patients with ischemic strokes, about 30% of patients are has large vessel occlusions. Now, if you go by large vessel occlusion, it means there is a clot that either came from the neck, the artery of the neck, or from the heart that comes up and occlude the major artery of the neck. Now, there is a, there are multiple scores that people use or we use to classify if the patient fits into the elbow category. One of them is a lay, race or a LAM score. So anytime a patient has a race score of five or higher, then there's a 50% chance that the patient has an elbow. And if the race is seven or higher, then there's a 70% chance that the patient is having a large vessel occlusion. Thank you. Great. So since 2015, the term large vessel occlusion has really kind of come in the spotlight. Dr. Johnson, can you talk just briefly about the history of endovascular therapy and the trials that propelled this therapy forward to where we are here in 2019? Absolutely, Dr. Dixon. So I think just to understand where we are today, it's definitely helpful to look back into the past of where we've come from and to dovetail off of Dr. Dr. Agarwal said, I think it's important to know that there's like three main blockages that can be considered large vessel occlusions. Uh, One, the carotid artery in the way to the brain from the front part of the brain. The first division of the 
branch of that, the middle cerebral artery, or one of the major branches in the back called the basal artery. Those are classical large vessel occlusions. Um, when you have those occlusions, you have the largest area of the brain at risk because those are really big blockages that can go to a large area of the brain. So your stroke can be include damage to a large area of the brain. And then secondly, the people that have these strokes have the worst disability. Again, largest area of the brain injured, largest disability after the stroke or, or higher chance of death. Um, now, going back in time, we'll go back to the Stone Ages, 1994. There was no such thing as stroke care in 1994 that we didn't have any therapy that it was proven to work. So someone came in with a large vessel occlusion or any kind of stroke, and uh, people tried to improve their outcomes, but essentially you just had to let the stroke happen, help them rehabilitate, and that was all you could do. Now, going forward to one full year to 1995 is something called the NINDS trial. So it's this trial that showed that if you can get IVTPA, which is a clot-busting drug, into someone within, nine, uh, within three hours of their stroke symptom onset, you could significantly improve their outcomes. So this was the first time in, in essentially in stroke care history that we could uh, take someone that's having a stroke and give them a better chance to not have symptoms or lesser symptoms in the future. Um, 2008 trial called ECAS-3 uh, then propelled us forward and said you could give this IV TPA up to 4.5 hours, uh, but then that was still it. Just TPA was all you could do. Now, that was a major step, and we had to rearrange all of our thoughts about stroke care to get people TPA as quickly as possible because it was shown the earlier you give it, the better you do. Um, but still, that was the you know, sole therapy that we had to affect stroke outcomes. There was one group of people we did notice did not benefit as much from TPA, and that was people with these large vessel occlusions. So... If you plug up a clot that's big enough to lodge and one of the big vessels going to the brain, it's a big, thick clot. And unfortunately, TPA just doesn't do as good a job as dissolving it um, as it does for the smaller branch occlusions. So people started working on, can we open up these large vessels uh, some way mechanically? Because the, the clot-busting drugs just weren't dissolving them as effectively. So that's how the, the mechanical thrombectomy came about. So there were multiple iterations or tries at trying to prove that we could do this from endovascular therapy, open these vessels. Um, but none of them were successful until in 2015. Um, five trials, they all have crazy trial names, you know, uh, Mr. Clean, Escape IA, Revascat. Um, they came about and all were designed similarly and all said the same thing, which is that if you get someone's uh, to endovascular care, even in addition to TPA, we could improve their outcome. So someone comes in, comes in three hours after their symptoms onset. They show that they have a blockage on a CTA of one of these large vessels. They go ahead and get TPA like they normally would. And in the group that only got TPA in these big trials, um, they did fine, like we would expect. But the people that got TPA and then went to large vessel occlusion had significantly improved outcomes. So in the historical sense, that became now our second major tool to improve patients' uh, outcomes when they're having acute strokes. So this was like a, you know, a national big deal. And now we're sort of working on the fallout. How do we get patients to this large vessel occlusion right. vascular thrombectomy? That's a great historical background you've given us. I appreciate that. So oh, for over 20 years, guys, we've in EMS have had hard lines in the sand, right? So we had the three-hour hard line in the sand. And then the ECAS trials pushed that to a four, four and a half hour line in the sand to get IVTPA. When the endovascular, the five initial trials uh, proved efficacy of the endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion, that time is generally accepted as a six hour window. Correct. Now that has been changed by some new trials that have come out. Dr. Adarazi, can you talk about the extended time window and kind of what a game changer that's been uh, for stroke patients? Absolutely. Um, 
when the trials came out, it was really a big uh, change for stroke care. Um, uh, it's very hard to overstate how big a change this is. Um, uh, the amount of benefit that patients got, uh, the number needed to treat with initial trials was 2.6. You can't treat 0.6 a patient, but that means for every three patients you treat, you have one more patient that's functionally independent. Um, but as we all know, 20% of patients wake up with stroke symptoms. So you don't really know when their stroke symptoms occur. And most of us sleep for more than four and a half hours. At least. <laughs> <laughs> Some nights. Um, so uh, also, um, a lot of patients come in with an unknown onset. People get home from work. Uh, they found their loved one that they last saw uh, uh, in the morning. They found them on the ground, not able to talk, not able to move the right side of their body. So all of these patients were excluded from both the TPA trials and the large vessel occlusion trials. So we set to answer the question of, can we offer this therapy for patients that are beyond six hours? Um, so that's where the six hours came from. It came from the initial uh, thrombectomy trials. Um, we had to draw a line in the sand for how long for the FDA's sake. So there were two trials, the DAWN trial that went all the way up to 24 hours. Um, and the diffuse three trial that went all the way up to 16 hours. Both trials, in addition to checking for a large vessel occlusion by CT angiography, also did CT perfusion. Uh, and the CT perfusion allows us to see the size of the area of the brain that's already damaged. We call that the core infarct. Um, they use slightly different metrics, but generally speaking, they look for patients who had a large vessel occlusion, a small core infarct, and big stroke seals. The mean stroke scale in this trial was 16 and 17. So these are very sick patients um, that are going to end up having a massive stroke. Um, 2018, so it's pretty fresh off the press. Um, both trials uh, 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 stopped early for overwhelming efficacy in the endovascular arm. So um, about 50% of patients, or so between 45 and, and 49, 46, 48% uh, of patients in the endovascular arms were functionally independent by 90 days, compared to medical therapy, which only 13 and 17% of the patients were functionally independent. Uh, so this is a devastating disease, uh, but now we're able to treat patients or find the patients where we can, that we can save up to 24 hours after uh, their stroke onset. Um, the results of these trials have really changed what we do. Because uh, now we need to identify these large vessel occlusions in the field, let the endovascular centers know that we have a large vessel occlusion patient coming, coming on because we have to uh, do the additional imaging to find the core infarct size. So um, the LVO screening tools are useful not just in the field, but also in the hospital to determine what kind of testing we need to do. Right, because these patients may rock up to EMS. They may present at the front door, although a little bit less likely because these are pretty devastating strokes or a fairly common event. They may come into hospital for an unrelated diagnosis and then develop these symptoms while they're in hospital. Dr. Agarwal, can you briefly describe and kind of walk the viewers through one of these endovascular clot retrieval procedures? Sure, so the most common clot that we have seen is in the middle cerebral artery. So as soon as we have the patient on the on the table and ready to go, we shoot an angiogram to know the exact location and uh, and the, the position of the clot. Once that happens, we advance a wire, which is a very small micro wire advance. It goes past through the clot distally into the normal segment of the artery. 
Once the wire is there, I advanced a tube, hollow tube, which is a micro catheter, and then I put in a stent. Through that stent, I'm able to slowly pull the clot out in one piece uh, out of the patient's brain. Awesome, thanks. So this is a really neat procedure, and I, you know, I've always been blown away by the fact that that it took us 20 years to really get here. We've been trying, like we've been doing this for STEMI for over 20 years, and we know it works really well, and we've tried it, trial and trial. So I think to me, guys, and I'll have you guys comment on this as the experts, but to me, a couple of things have changed. We're picking the patient population a little bit better, the imaging is better, and then the technology and the, the clearly the, the training and techniques are better. You guys wanna, wanna weigh in and comment on that? Yeah, I think um, uh, those are the key points. Um, uh, the initial trials when we first started to do this, um, uh, actually, let me start back. There's differences in the cerebral blood vessels compared to the heart blood vessels. They're smaller, much more fragile, and much harder to get to. So our developments in technology that occurred over the past 20 years has allowed us to get these bigger devices um, up into the brain more reliably. Uh, the second thing is CT angiography for diagnosis really came into clinical practice in the 2000s. So our first generation of clinical trials for stroke, we were re relying only on scales. So we had a lot of patients going into these clinical trials for LVOs that didn't have LVOs. Um, and the third thing is the technology is much better. Our first devices, the Mercy device, um, was it able to open up the blood vessel in about 40% of the time. The next generation devices, the stent retrievers, we got up to 70%. Now with our newer generation and larger bore catheters, we're able to get to 85% of the time getting the blood vessel open and even beyond that. Okay. So with that, let's pivot to see how EMS fits into this landscape of the uh, new landscape of endovascular therapy is with all ischemic processes, LVO is very, very time dependent. What have each, and you guys can each comment on this, what have you seen in your own systems in the last three to five years um, to start clawing that time back and decreasing those times to therapy? Dr. Agarwal, you want to start? So I, I, I have seen the, the EMTs, the medics have grown a lot in the last 10, 15 years since I've, since I've been in this field. They are more at a professional level. So anytime I get a pre-alert about a race score, I alert my team. And the, so anytime we have a race score, the race score usually is very accurate representation of the NIH stroke scale. So anytime I have a race of five or higher, I, I'm pretty sure that there's an 80 to 90% chance we are having a uh, larger cell occlusion. So that helps me get my team ready even before the patient comes into the ED. So team readiness, EMS pre-alerts, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Aldarazi? Yeah, I think that this is a really important subject. So I think pre-alert is critically important and especially to be reliable to score so you can bring the team in. I always talk about in the past, uh, before we had all this evidence that this worked so well, things were uh, in series. So this is what that means is uh, it's like a, like a relay race in the Olympics. So you bring the patient in from EMS, you give it to the ER. The ER assesses the patient. This is the old way of doing it. The ER assesses the patient, sends them to CT. They come back from CT, a radiologist calls, says there's no bleed, they start TPA. Someone comes, a neurologist comes and sees them and says they may be having a larger seclusion. They send it back to a CTA. Then they finish that CTA, they come back to the ER, and then someone says there's a larger occlusion, the radiologist reads it, then the team comes in. All this takes a lot of time. So I think the new paradigm is 
pre-alert from EMS, have everything set up for an elbow patient to go right from EMS to CTA, even CT perfusion. Meanwhile, the team has already been alerted and is coming in, setting up a cath lab procedure. And all of this is like essentially your relay team running the race all at the same time. So it just speeds it all up. And I think this will just continue to get better as uh, as our systems improve. But that's the key to it is everyone be moving towards the final goal all at the same time. I'm glad you brought that up. So let's let's get it. Let's dig into some of the controversy here in the stroke world. We know that improved times to therapy uh, and revascularization relate to improved patient outcomes. And the quicker we can get these patients revascularized, the better they're going to be. And I think there's good evidence, and we also know that intrafacility or going to the wrong hospital by EMS and having to transfer this, these patients is bad for LBO stroke patients. Dr. Alderazi, can you just comment on the bypass recommendations from AHA? And then you can also all comment on what we do here locally uh, on bypass and trying to get the right patient to the right therapy at the right time. Yeah, so the AHA and most of the bodies recognize, uh, broadly speaking, two two levels of uh, stroke centers, primary stroke centers and comprehensive stroke centers. Primary stroke centers can deliver TPA reliably and safely. Uh, Comprehensive stroke centers can offer a lot more services. And with with regards to this uh, this disease, uh, mechanical thrombectomy for large vessel occlusion stroke. So the... The content issue, uh, um, uh, the question that arises is, do you go to a primary stroke center because it's closer, or do you bypass them and go to a comprehensive stroke center because you can get mechanical thrombectomy for large vessel occlusion strokes? And the time point is set at within 15 minutes, the highest level of uh, care within 15 minutes. The argument to moving it up to 30 minutes is there because uh, we can the door-in, door-out time similar to car- cardiac disease. If you take the patient to the wrong hospital, it takes a long time to diagnose and then move the patient to the, the, the definitive uh, hospital where they're gonna get the definitive treatment. Uh, in coronary disease, it's about 19 minutes door and door out time. With stroke, it's also nationally probably closer to 120, 150 minutes door and door out time. Now that is a very, very long time for the brain to be deprived from blood flow. So a lot of us have recommended that we actually push the bypass window to 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And some of us that are more aggressive about it say that, you know, maybe it should be even beyond that. With most large metropolitan areas, such as Houston, 30 minutes or 40 minutes bypass time will mean that if somebody has a large vessel occlusion scale, you're going to be going to a comprehensive stroke center, not to a primary stroke center. So we hear 15, 30, and 45-ish. We'll start with Dr. Agual. Do you want to comment on those times? Agree, disagree? So it's agree, but at the end of the day, time is brain. Like every minute counts. Like every minute, as soon as the clot. So the literature says that as soon as the clot hits the brain, the brain cells, the neuron starts to die. So all the time people say like, no, 15 minutes is okay, 45 minutes is okay. But at the end of the day, the studies have shown that the delay in care, although it's within the standard timeline, has a beneficial, it has a direct proportional outcome to the patient patient outcomes because then the patient, there's del- delay in uh, patient recovery. The patient has to be in rehab for a few weeks or months more than the patient would have uh, gone home sooner than that. Dr. Johnson, you want to chime in? Agree, yeah. disagree? No, ag- times? I agree. So this is, a, I think it's a, honestly, it's going to end up being a regional decision based on the resources, what the time is. Uh, some places have so many comprehensive centers within 15 minutes. I know locally it's kind of like that. 
that you don't have to have the debate 15 versus 30 minutes. You know, if it looks like on a pre-hospital score, it's an elbow, take them to the comprehensive center, the closest Yeah, one. I would agree with that. All yeah. systems are not created equal. And if I'm an EMS medical director in a small region with two trucks, and I know that I'm going to have to take that truck out of service for two hours to drive straight away to a comprehensive, I, I would say there is some time in there to where I would work with the local center to build a seamless door in, door out, right. direct acceptance to neuroendovascular. Agreed that sounds from right. the group, or I agree you guys want to comment on that while we're on here, talk about what you've done with other hospitals in the region to develop these door in, door out, automatic acceptance type of uh, scenarios that decrease the time to therapy. Uh, I, I'd like to bring it up a little bit of something from my past. I, I used to practice in West Texas at Texas Tech. Now that's a huge region for anybody that, that knows. And when we were hearing about the debates of 15, 30 minutes, we'd laugh and then go on the rest of our day because it wouldn't change a single transfer in our city because we had um, two centers, uh, one that was offering thrombectomy 24 hours, the other one was offering it nine, nine to five. And we were the two major stroke centers anyway. We were receiving all the patients and at night they were going to the one, uh, our center, which was 24 seven. Um, what we really needed to do is how do we work with other centers in the region, Amarillo, Midland, Odessa. These are places that would be life-flighting a patient to us for 45 minutes helicopter time. So for us, door in, door out was way more important than bypass time. Having said that, now that I'm in Houston, we have both issues. We want to really get the bypass down and get the patients to the right hospital. But our pre-hospital stroke scales, uh, large vessel occlusion scales, are not perfect. So we are going to have some patients that end up, in spite of our best efforts, at the primary stroke centers. So even in our city, while the most focus should be on the bypass time, uh, I think the door and door out time is also an important metric to continue to use. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Johnson, you want to comment on that as no, well? I think, that, I think that's exactly right. I think it's both uh, because you can't you can't be perfect either way. Just bypassing or not bypassing, you're going to have crossover. People that go to primaries that end up having elbows, people that go to comprehensives that don't. Um, and that delay, going to the comprehensive 30 minutes is going to delay their IVTPA, which they need. Um, so I think you have to do your best you can to, sh best you can to shorten door in, door out times in the primaries and tighten that process up as well as, as, you know, make a reasonable bypass strategy for your region. And on that theme of time, I know that there is considerable debate as well about what should those national benchmarks be? And I try to find one time written in stone, but we'll start with Dr. Agarwal. Can you comment on where it is now and where you think it should be for, let's talk just a, a common metric or benchmark of arrival in ED or door to groin time and door to revascularization time, both for primary arriving patients and for Dido or door in, door out transfer patients. Right, so I think usually the, the national average is 120 uh, minutes or so, but then we can still work towards getting it better. Like I have seen, so there, are, there have been instances uh, in the past where there is an alvo for an inpatient. Now, if you compare those times, the inpatient is somewhere on the floor. Now, the patient, a cardiac patient, post-cardiac procedure, he just gets an elbow. He comes straight to the CT, and then the team is there. Everyone is there. It's a 9-to-5, so he gets in very fast. So outcomes for these patients are way better than the one that, that the actual that we get from, from other institutions. So if you follow that principle, if we have a streamline, everything streamlined, then why can't we get the door times, door-to-needle or door-to-recanalization down? 
at the end of the day i think like you know with this fast pace and it's it's always better to be a healthy competition so it's always good to compete among each other different hospitals even in the bigger hospitals i've seen there are small teams that compete among themselves to get the times down so healthy comp- competition is always important and this is why i i always see that the times going down to like 60 minutes dr johnson yeah i think this is an evolution as well i think back in the old days you know 4 or 5 hours is great <laughs> and now i mean i think everyone's trying to get door to needle to less than 120 which is reasonable not ideal you want someone door to needle in under an hour probably so i think that the governing bodies of stroke that hold hospitals and make the rules for hospitals to try and meet have slowly started to go down you got to be faster you got to be faster and this is going to be something in the future that may be down to 60 minutes very soon most hospitals would try right, to so hit that so my understanding is especially societies SNIS and the other one I'm sorry to the society it it escapes SVIN SVIN thank yeah. you very much I'm going to be in trouble um has that said at 90 minutes can you guys talk about that is that what's your understanding of what's the national benchmark right now for door to groin so um uh, My point of view is the national benchmark for door to groin is 90 minutes right now okay. and door to revascularization is 120 minutes. And if you look at the trials, uh the fastest trial was the escape trial and they had a door to groin groin puncture or door to puncture time of 90 minutes. And we look at the STAR registry which is a registry of multiple comprehensive stroke centers in the United States we're able to achieve these time targets. Uh, internally in our own institution we have said that our next goal is going to be door to groin puncture of 60 there is talk, talk amongst the, amongst the AHA to move to a slightly different metric which is door to device of and actually a target of less than 60 minutes and i think that's very ambitious because it take, usually takes between 8 and 25 minutes to go from the groin to to the to the device in our own series it's about 15 minutes so i think we're still going to end up staying with the door to groin puncture for the future for cbl future probably will hit most of us 90 minutes uh, i'm a member of the two societies so i, I i'm going to stick by our societies on this one and we should really be pushing for 60 minutes uh, okay. one metric i think we should be talking about and maybe we can do something here by uh, looking at at it across our our region is a first medical ta- contact reperfusion that'll tell us how everybody together working together is doing and i i agree with dr agawa that competition is good within our own system in our comprehensive stroke centers we have competition uh but i think the collaborative part of knowing how are we all doing together ems physicians nurses techs ongoing from first medical contact to reperfusion what that what's that metric supposed to be uh on average so i need to chip in here so i know like everyone looks at the timing like no okay how fast we are but at the end of the day we have to look at the outcomes as well because no matter how fast you are how did the patient do when the patient was discharged how did the patient do at the end of 90 days agreed so, agreed yeah, so those are some things like you no know, we really we still have to consider because i know like no it's like a rat race okay who's doing faster but at the end of the day like you no know, if you have phenomenal angiographic images but then the patient is still morbid or mrs of 3 or 4 then you know you didn't do, do any good to the patient no couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and i think this is a great this is a great controversial topic so i love this guys and i'll just kick in here as the non neurosurgeon non endovascular person ems person in the room um the phenomenal cooperation that we have here in the northern eastern region the montgomery county region to have three esteemed specialists from competing different hospital systems talking about stroke to improve patient care 
which I think I applaud you all and your systems. I think it's phenomenal that you guys work together like you do. One of the things that, that we've set up at MCHD is something very similar to follow the metrics from, and we have co full cooperation of all of our stroke centers to where we collect all the, uh, the benchmarking data and the outcomes, as Dr. Irwall said, which is very, very important. Time doesn't matter at all if the outcomes do not reflect um, those, those improved times. So couldn't agree more there. Um, a couple last things, guys. TPA. So now we have these hard lines. We have 4.5 hours for TPA, and then we have up to 24 hours for revascularization with endovascular therapy. Where's the role for TPA going? I'm going to go back to Dr. Agarwal, but I'd like everybody to kind of briefly comment on where they think the future of TPA is, is going in stroke care. So TPA is like a hot stop. It has been proved over and over again that it is beneficial for patients. And historically, TPA was always given. Now, recently, there have been studies that came out that TPA is still beneficial for elbows or large vessel occlusions. The reason is if there is a large clot, like say a one or two centimeter clots that occluding the middle cerebral artery, the TPA is not going to dissolve that clot. However, studies have shown that there is multiple small microemboli that are associated with that phenomenon, with that episode. And TPA is definitely going to do clot busting or trying to dissolve those clots. So at least there is distal perfusion of the small branches and the capillaries. Dr. Johnson? Yeah, I think right now we, we give it for even patients we're soon to take for an intervention just because there is a percentage of these that open with TPA, even the whole vessel. Uh, so I think that's important. I do think that Dr. Darazi speaks nicely about this. I'll leave it to him. Uh, trials coming up to see if if maybe this is a waste of time, essentially, maybe all the time we you know get people hooked up to TPA, we could just be rushing to the cath lab, and I think that is a question yet to be answered, but something people are considering. Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Johnson, I agree with you that the current standard is TPA. We should be doing. We should advocate for giving it for these patients. As far as the clinical trials that you talked about, um, as you know, we could be going either way. There is a SWIFT direct trial and, and also another trial in Europe that the name escapes me right now, where they're looking at TPA plus thrombectomy versus thrombectomy alone for elbow strokes. On the other hand, um, uh, through the NIH, and, uh, and here's a plug for my colleagues at UT Houston, um, we're looking at going the other direction, TPA plus eptophibutide or agatirban and thrombectomy versus TPA and thrombectomy alone. Uh, in large vessel occlusion strokes. So um, we'll have to see how these trials play out. They'll play out over the next five years, and then we'll have some more answers of whether we're going to be doing selective TPA in elbows or um, uh, maybe even potentially more blood thinners. Could you just, uh, for the audience and uh, the rest of us, can you just uh, clarify what those investigational drugs are compared to regular old TPA? Oh, yeah. So um, uh, eptifibotide is something called a GP2B3A inhibitor. Well we done, doctor. Nice. I know. <laughs> we, we all struggle with it still. Uh, Argatraban is a direct thrombin inhibitor. These are eptifibotide works on the platelets. Argatraban works on the coagulation system. And TPA breaks down blood clots. So uh, it's an interesting trial looking at combining TPA, which breaks down the blood clot, plus antiplatelets, and potentially thrombectomy, or 
combining the TPA plus the argatroban, which is an anticoagulant, plus thrombectomy and see if that will improve things or if we're just going to end up with a lot more bleeding. We're doing this in a very safely controlled fashion and, and monitoring every patient for any complication. That's a great segue into my next question for the whole group is where we look at how far we've gone in the last 36 months. Where are we going next, Dr. Johnson? Yeah, so I think there's many high yield areas. We've gone over a lot of them bypassing these types of things. I think pre-hospital technologies to know in the in the EMS van, whether someone has a bleed or not, start TPA. I know there's lots of miniaturized little helmets that can detect blood that people are working on. So I think pre-hospital more and more happening before the patient gets to the hospital or in route to the hospital to help us understand if there's a large vessel occlusion versus a bleed, et cetera, will be helpful. Um, I think the next thing is automatization. So I know I'm working with, uh, just a plug, I, one of my good friends uh, and I were bantering around when I was in fellowship uh, at Stanford about how can we improve this process right as those trials were coming out in 2015. And after I left behind my back, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he started a company and got, vest, you know, so essentially this turns into something called Viz AI, which is a, which is a system that can, uh, with AI, detect an ELVO and a CTA, essentially before the pictures are even sent to the radiologist to look at. You get an alert on your phone, Everybody can come in before, you know, before anyone even uh, has a chance to look at the films that's a human. So I think these types of things uh, can help speed the process along. And then, of course, the final thing is the technology to actually open the vessels, things we talked about, combining drugs, getting better and better devices, which we're already doing. We're up to like 80 plus percent. Yeah, when we started talking about this, we had two devices. Dr. Agarwal, how many do we have now? I mean, it's it's phenomenal, the growth in this, yes, in for this me, field. Like, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I started out uh, doing thrombectomies and stuff 15 years ago when <laughs> we just had Mercy and I had actually seen this evolve over, over a period of time. And then we had uh, the Solitaire that was the next, the first generation Stentiver. After that, now you have Trivo, which are different size and shapes. You have the Ambotrap. And then you have the 3Ds, but everything. So we have different vendors. But the good thing about these is everything is they're like different sizes, different shapes. And then the technique, the design is different. Instead of just sticking with one vendor, I usually look at the design and then look at the, the location of the clot, the type of the clot that's expected to come, the size of the vessel. So all these factors help me pick up the right device. So picking up the right device is it's like very, very important. Same, undersizing it, there's a chance you may shatter it off. You may break it distally, oversizing it there's a chance you may have a brain hemorrhage. Uh, I think there's a, another couple of things that are, are coming along um, which uh, have the potential to uh, change the field in interesting ways. One is the large core trials. So uh, the uh, CT perfusion shows us sometimes the patients have already have a very large area of brain that's infarcted, but still have area beyond that that's at risk of, of, of uh, damage. Um, and uh, we don't know whether mechanical thrombectomy is beneficial in these patients or whether there is a special subtype of patients, for example, modified by age or, or time, that mechanical thrombectomy can be useful for. So the large core trials are the next uh, set of trials that are probably going to come out uh, with the results sooner than uh, other technologies, but research is very hard to predict. Uh, another interesting thing to go, and I know we have a very wide audience from multiple countries here in different regions, um, with some of the headset devices that you're talking about, and there's an ultrasound-based headset device that was used in the uh, clot bus trial and is now going to be used in the trust trial. And this is to use 
during transport for patients with large vessel occlusion as they're going from the primary stroke center to the comprehensive stroke center. The examples that you talked about, uh, cities where the transport time is going to be two hours to comprehensive stroke center, rural communities, um, or even centers where there's some delays. Uh, that may be a, a great technology, and there are clinical trials examining that uh, already underway. Fantastic. So we're really moving into new technology the, of a very consistent theme for the listeners out there, right? Early diagnosis. The earlier we make that diagnosis by EMS and rule out those stroke mimics, uh, the quicker we pre-alert and get the information so we get these very complex systems of care together uh, is going to translate into improved patient outcomes. Is there one stroke score, guys, right now, until that technology, is there, uh, is there a golden BB out there? Is there one stroke score that you prefer over another here at MCHD? Um, we use the race score. We adopted that because at the time it was the only one validated in EMS. Um, uh, for all uh, transparency, we are going to pivot to, uh, I think, an easier score to, to administer and across the board and one we can regionalize in our region, uh, the LA Motor Score. Can you guys comment on that? Is there a, a magic score, so Dr. Agarwal? Like there are multiple scores and then people, uh, it depends on which community or which county are comfortable using which score. But just instead of going by the score, I believe in the person who's giving me the information. So instead of the score, if you can focus on, on the medic who is comfortable using any of the score. Because if you tell me a race of five, then I know what it means versus a race of one. So it doesn't matter if it's a, it's a uh, LA County score or a LAMP score or a score. The, so that's why like, no, that's where you guys come into play. The, you, once you're comfortable giving out me a score and I'm confident with that number, that's how I can streamline my flow. Yeah, I think this is some of the fallout of these trials, right? Is that we now have a secondary waves of things to figure out as how to get yeah. patients to the right, the right care. Uh, I don't have a particular score either. I think that as time goes on, we'll validate them better and see which ones, there's gonna be a balance between which ones are more easy to use and more accurately scored by EMS around in a large scale versus the accuracy of predicting elbows. And I think we'll find one somewhere in the middle, to my knowledge at least, uh, that has not been found yet. But um, I, I do think that it's very important to communicate by some score to the hospital that you're bringing the patient to. XYZ score, doesn't matter, but this patient we think is... An elbow alert. Yeah, I think um, uh, to echo here, I don't think there's a... And the data supports that there's no one clear score that's the master of all. Um, uh, but to follow up on your comment on validation in EMS and research, each of these scores have had a different uh, methodology for validation. Some of them were not, weren't actually validated, and um, very few of them have been validated in EMS. The RACE score is a very good EMS score. Um, it, it's um, my second favorite. Um, <laughs> you can uh, say it, doctor. You Go know, ahead. I know I will, you're dying to. I, I, I will pick a favorite by the end of this. Um, uh, and ERACE is also being used in the race cat trial, which is in, in Catalonia, the area of mm -hmm. Spain where, where Barcelona is. And that's actually going to give us class one evidence on what to do with pre-hospital selection. So it has implications for other countries, other regions that are different because we can understand things from these trials. The score that I like a lot is a, uh, a compromise. It's uh, the, van, the stroke van score. So it st stands for vision, 
aphasia and neglect. So uh, patients who have weakness plus van positive, any of these things, a, a visual defect or they uh, they can't have a language defect, they have aphasia or neglect, they don't understand what's going on one side of the world, those are van positive and then you have van negative patients. And van positive patients are much more likely to have a uh, large vessel occlusion. Uh, we liked it because it was very easy to teach. In fact, my the previous institution where we uh, instituted, um, I would say we really EMS ran with it once we showed them the data. And then they came to us and said, we implemented this. And um, it, it was really great. And internally within Memorial Hermann, we're implementing VAN for in-hospital. But it's very important that we collaborate within the region. Because I need to be able to speak the same language as EMS. And we all need to speak the same language together. So I think it's important for us to set... Uh, either within EMS uh, services or potentially even regionally, what score we're going to go for uh, so that the hospitals understand. Uh, my ED staff needs to, to know, is this a positive score or a next score? And I think the term that you use, the, the you know, ELVO positive score or stroke ELVO patients coming in, that no matter what score you're using on the back end, that term lets us know it's kind of like STEMI is coming, uh, an emergent ELVO is coming. Let's get the team ready. Couldn't agree more. So to summarize that, it's benefit in regionalization of one score so we don't confuse different providers that may be taking the report. And instead of using the raw score given on the radio report from EMS to use a elbow positive or elbow negative uh, stroke alert. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. That's and a good place, I, I think. Go ahead. I would want to put one more plug in for it's not a real score, but the FAST. I mean, I think that's the other piece of this. It's is the, that the FAST DD, correct? Yeah, the fa the, well, also the family, just the, the basic layman's FAST score, right? Okay. The, the families and the, et cetera, the loved ones uh, need to be able to identify strokes. So that's the other place that we can make a big difference uh, as a group is also focusing on public education and, and these, these things. If we don't get called time passes by right so i think that's one other thing that tell all your family members <laughs> yeah know. very good very yeah. good point public education if, yeah. if we don't get early notification then we can't get you into the system so that's a great place guys to wrap it up so for the viewers i'd just like to summarize some of the things we've talked about today endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion less than 24 hours or wake up standard of care guys in 2019 controversy still exists over the the uh, best ems screening tool for lvo um, the latest AHA meta-analysis on this uh, said race lamps and CSTAT, just pick one. They're all about the same. Um, we did a study here at MCHD, and what do we find about the same? Systems overall should develop a regional plan. I think that's a consistent theme throughout all of our system experts here, is that we have to figure out not only how to care for patients that arrive in ED at a comprehensive stroke center, but we have to figure out how we're going to work them up within our region at other hospitals and appropriately transfer them when they need transferring. So regions uh, really should develop uh, regional training for EMS and a robust quality assurance, quality improvement system that constantly monitors our progress here. And I can tell you in this region, since we've really been working on it and watching it, our, our stroke care, I would say Montgomery County is probably some of the best in the nation. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Agree. So uh, thanks, thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, for this episode, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. 
Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.